the Tinkting Club. Welcome back to Tinkting Club, and we have another very special episode for you. He is a U.S. Marine and the subject of a book called Acid Test by Tom Schroeder. He's also a participant in a revolutionary new study that uses MDMA-assisted therapy to treat and cure PTSD. He's here today to tell us a story and share some insight into the future of psychopharmacology. Welcome to the Tink Tink Club, Nicholas Blackston. Hey. <laughs> What's up, Nick? Welcome. Hey. I'm uh, Matt Thanks, thanks for having me on. Yeah. I'm Matt Landis. And I'm Chris Cox. Hey there. What's going on? It's nice Those to see three you. of y'all. Yes, sir. <laughs> now, so for anybody that's listening that doesn't know, you want to give a little bit of a background for us? Uh, about, about who I am, pretty much? Yeah, sure. Just a quick summary. Yeah. Um, well, like I said, my name's Nicholas Blackson. I'm 28 years old. Um, right out of high school, um, I joined the Marine Corps here from uh, Kentucky, which is where I'm living back now. And uh, that was back in 2004. I uh, went in with an open con, not an open contract, infantry contract. And then I became a machine gunner while I was in SOI and then joined a 1-6 weapons company. And shortly after I hit the fleet, I was being shipped off uh, to Fallujah, uh, Iraq. Fallujah, Iraq wasn't that bad. Uh, I mean, even though it's still a deployment over to Iraq, but I say that because compared to my second deployment, which was to Ramadi, Iraq in 2006 to the beginning of 2007. Uh, man, Ramadi was uh, a hellhole. Indeed, it was a little minefield of IEDs and getting into firefights continuously whenever we went out the gate. And the problem is you never really knew who the enemy was because one minute they'd go around a corner and then throw over a black sock over their face and then come out shooting at you and then take it off and blend right back into the crowd. So it's just a lot of getting getting shot at and then having to return fire. So sitting there like a sitting duck a lot of times. But uh, I went through a lot of uh, situations over there, a lot of trying situations. And um, I watched, um, I mean, the first time I ever had to get into a firefight and fire my weapon on the enemy. I was expecting, you know, an enemy, but they were these uh, these young kids, could have been 12, 13 years old. And I remember whenever they were, whenever I saw like the, the silhouette of this like kid popping out around the corner shooting, I, I couldn't, it just didn't register in my head. I, I remember saying to my uh, driver, I was like, is that someone trying to shoot at us? And Cause he didn't have it up in his shoulder. He was just like pit firing it. And then whenever one of the rounds cracked on the windshield, it just it registered, and I had to you know get up and engage him. And you know, that kind of sucks because you know that I mean, it weighed on my mind for a lot. I thought about it, just I know that somebody encouraged that kid to do that, or mm-hmm. you know what I mean, like they, you know what I'm saying. And, and yeah, that's one like of the upset. Exactly. There's a lot of one of the things I realized is there's a lot of choices over there that are, have to be made in the situation that I was in it was a um a killer be kill and you know it's not like I wanted to 
go over there and kill anybody. Nobody's that blood crazy. Um, I just chose to be a Marine and found myself in a situation in combat where I had to make these live or die choices. And, uh, and you know, they program you as a Marine pretty much. You don't choose to run away. You always fight. So, And um, I also, in 2006 of uh, February, I mean, sorry, 2006 yeah. of December, my truck was um, ambushed and I got um, an enemy RPG and blew up my truck and took shrapnel to my, my butt and legs and a little bit to my left left nut. And uh, of course, at that time, I had no idea I was hit. But um, that was a um, a pretty tough situation. My driver ended up dying, and um, that was really hard to to deal with at the time. He bled out, and that the piece of metal that went through his femoral artery was the same piece of metal that hit my ammo cans and blew up underneath me. So the metal that I took was my own ammo, but yeah. um, after I got back from Ramadi, I really wasn't, um, I really didn't notice that much of an issue until about maybe six months after, and I really had to do started having nightmares, so hypervigilant, which is like always on alert, wondering where the next attack's going to come from, and I was very grateful with my fiance at the time, my wife now, but um, she was with me through my whole deployment, very faithful, very true, mm-hmm. and I turned, you know, to this monster, because it's just this, it's like my mind couldn't register that I was back, you know, right, and yeah. I also had this huge problem of feeling like numb, I just, I had no emotions, and it's because when you're over there, you, when you fight, you numb yourself in order to get through what you have to get through. Right. But there's nothing to turn that back on whenever we come back home. Mm-hmm. So that's what a lot of the issues with PTSD, there's numerous symptoms. But, I mean, the depression was the hardest because it gave me a sense of um, of hopelessness. Because I, while I was still in the Marine Corps, I got help from the Deployment Health Center there on base in Camp Lejeune, uh, North Carolina. And then um, they gave me Zoloft and Seroquel. And that stuff just made me like, super numb, right. like a zombie. In terms of and worse, I was able to get myself off of it, kind of wean off of it mm-hmm. um, before I got out. Um, because I was working over there on the uh, rifle range. I was in the infantry unit, and they were going to going on a third deployment to Afghanistan. And I didn't have enough time left on my contract. And I didn't decide to uh, <laughs> extend my contract, so they uh, I got to work out my last year or so working on a rifle range, um, which is like being around <laughs> constant fire from um, week to Monday to Friday, wow. training new people every week and stuff. And so a lot of firing can kind of trigger some stuff. But um, I was able to wean myself off of that and got out of the Marine Corps in 2008. Then moved down to South Carolina, um, just north of Charleston, in a town called uh, Somerville. And I was living there with my fiance, and uh, we got married. I went to school. When I went to school, I started noticing some 
big issues. Um, a one period, just to give an example, mm-hmm. I was taking a test and something came up about uh, like ancient Samaria. And I was thinking about, man, that's where I was in Iraq. And I was in that, those ancient sands. And then my mind just wandered off and I got to thinking about all kinds of things. And I had like a missing time moment before I knew it. The teacher was telling us that we only had 10 more minutes. And I was like, I zoned out. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, the whole time. That kind of bothers me a lot because I was able to control a lot of my stuff in the sense of like, you know, getting out of situations or running to bathrooms if I was having a panic attack, not letting people kind of see it. But whenever those kind of things happen, you just, you're always afraid it's going to happen in front of people. And um, one of the hardest things was I actually uh, blew up on my mother when I was back. And um, I, I just, it was one of those situations, just like whenever I was being rageful before, like with my wife, I would just be watching myself from a third person perspective. And, you know, really couldn't, nothing could get through to me. And and then when I saw myself do that to my mother and my dad stood up and he'd said, don't talk to my wife that way. And I realized I felt the disconnect there, you know, when your own father's not saying don't talk to your mom that way. He said, don't talk to my wife. He saw me as a threat and enemy. And I I broke down and it's, um, it causes a lot of problems with not just the person who has PTSD, but the families a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a lot of brothers who suffer as well. Luckily, while I was down there in Charleston, I was looking for uh, alternative help. Um, well, to kind of backpedal a little bit, I got with the VA and got help while I was still in school, and they just gave me the same pills. And so I didn't stay on those for very long, maybe like six months. Right. And I started looking into some alternative stuff. I never smoked um, marijuana or did any type of psychedelics or anything like that before the military, except I was able to smoke at one time. And I was actually, while I was overseas, and huh. it was a safe situation where we could do it. And it was my first time ever, but I, it was after I was blown up. It in February following year. Mm-hmm. And I remember the peace I felt, because every time I would have to go out there every day, you're out there in front of the gate. It really is like some <laughs> some kind of coliseum, and you're like some gladiator you're about to go out, and you never know what you're gonna get into or if you're gonna be if you're gonna be coming back through that gate. Right. And um, but whenever I had that smoke at that night, just staring out at the city, like I felt peace. Like, I didn't <laughs> see that as a threat out there, and mm-hmm. I actually got to enjoy the fact that I was in <laughs> ancient Mesopotamia, yeah. right next to Euphrates stuff and it was peaceful and it just gave me that little bit of ease so I remembered that and so I started uh, smoking myself to kind of self-medicate it, it helped a lot it really did I was able to buckle down with school because it really drowned out the uh, the background noise that I was dealing with PTSD and I could focus but it really didn't help the, the core issue and I happened to it's going online and I found uh, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, and they right. were conducting research study to treat PTSD within DMA. And it just so happened to be being conducted in Charleston, which was like 25 minutes away from where I was at. So <laughs> I called and called and called, and 
eventually I got it got in and I went through um, a lot of the screening because the research studies in FDA and DA approved research study. So um, had to go through a bunch of hoops of presenting my papers and showing that I had PTSD, uh, treatment resistant PTSD that I had tried before with medications and therapy and it had failed. And um, also I had to check and make sure that, you know, had a strong heart and everything because MDMA can really increase the, uh, the heart rate right. and, and symptoms. Um, to talk about the, uh, the therapy a bit, it, it, I mean, I really changed my life. It's just uh, as fundamental and life-changing as the moment that whenever I got blown up in Iraq was, like, this overpowered it. I remember saying in the, because um, you, you have these talk sessions a couple weeks before you actually have your MDMA session. Right. And um, so they tell you what you're going to get into, like what to expect with the drug and everything. And um, you tell them a lot about your story and your life. And um, whenever, it, whenever it kicked in <laughs> the very first time, my very first session, I had this magnificent, healing experience where I, I pretty much forgave myself. I saw myself as this monster this whole time. That was, you know, I blamed every incident where PTSD arose in my life on that Marine side of me. Like it was that my, you know, my fault for some reason, you know, I, it's really hard for me to look at it and explain it now uh, when I try and talk about it so much has changed. But, um, even when I read the book, sometimes it's just like, wow, it's hard to believe how much it's helped. But <laughs> I, uh, I could feel again. You know, it helps you. I regained my emotions. I forgave myself. I had this, you know, healing experience where I saw this Marine Corps side of myself all chained up, and um, I forgave them. And like there was this, it was all visual within because I'm laying down on a bed with uh, headphones on and eye shades on and the MDMA is in my system. And there's um, Michael and Annie Midhofer, the husband and wife uh, therapist were there uh, and you stay there the whole day and um, you even spend the night there and wake up the next morning before they uh, release you. And it's a beautiful setting. It's not like a, uh, a clinical setting where it looks like some <laughs> lab or anything. It was almost like a house with beautiful skylights coming through and everything. So, and the the drug really helps take away the fear because a lot of the issues with PTSD is that you know those are fearful events and the mind just can't seem to categorize it, can't put it away, file it. You know the events that happen, yeah. and. So when it does, it, it will do it at these random times and bring up these memories, which will create these symptoms. And so, of course, you're afraid to talk about these things because you don't want to have these panic attacks or you don't want to you know, have any of those symptoms. So yeah. when it removes this fear, I mean, you just you just start talking about it. You just go from one revelation <laughs> to another. And, you know, and a lot of it for me, because I grew up very um, kind of a loner kid or whatever, as you, you could read in the book, mm -hmm. but the Marine Corps really helped me out open up more socially but i always kind of maintain this visual world um so it's helped me be an, an artist today but i i was always inward always thinking and even as a little kid thinking some real bizarre stuff 
And when I would kind of pose these questions to other people, that's what kind of got me picked on. <laughs> Not the kind of stuff that most people were thinking about. So I ended up keeping to myself and I spent a lot of time in the woods. Mm-hmm. And nature has this natural way of unlocking these things within the subconscious that allows you to just I don't know, be able to relate to things more and understand things more. And um, I would fall asleep in the woods a lot, have these beautiful dreams and visions. And that's the closest I can relate to some of these psychedelic things that I would have. Because you'd be laying there, the music going, and the kind of music they had was this Native American, like, chanting music. And so even the rhythms just seemed to put you in this state where you, I guess you can kind of confront your subconscious and, and it brings all these the way I, uh, I had a visual one time that I was like at a desk and this file folder was being brought up to me and it was my service record. And like I and like I needed to go through it and talk about it. And <clears throat> once I set up from the bed and started talking to the doctor and just kind of going from one revelation to another, it was like me outwardly going through this file folder. <laughs> and you can feel the changes going on inside. I learned a lot about I learned a lot about my um, my breathing um, and how that pulled me back to the center and helped me get out of these panic attacks. So I learned a lot that really helped me to this day. And uh, I had a total of six sessions. The first three okay. were a uh, blind. They didn't know what I was getting. And once they opened up the blind, I had the option. Since I had the medium dose, I had the option to stay in for another three sessions. And while I'd found healing in my very first session, it, it unlocks a lot of deep things. The more stuff starts unfolding and the more your mind brings these issues to the forefront, you can find that a lot of things can go back to your childhood, things you didn't even remember. And um, so it helped me go through a lot and understand some things. And it kind of puts you in a state afterwards where you're, I guess you could say you don't really have PTSD anymore, but you're in a, po- a state of uh, post-traumatic healing. Hmm. Because I got out of study in, I believe it was in 2011. And uh, 2012 was my very, the very end of it. And, you know, I, things still pop up in my mind. There's no way I can ever forget the things that I saw over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I no longer debilitated by them i can obviously talk about them and yeah and one of the like the biggest things for me is i really feel functional again I'm about to have a child come into the world and to be able to be a have my head on my shoulders where i feel like i can raise a child was one of the biggest biggest worries for me before when i had ptsd yeah but i really feel inside like i'm ready so it's that's a great feeling to have oh congratulations but it really <laughs> Thank you very much. It just bothers me, though, that, I mean, I was involved in a research study that was approved, and, you know, this is still an illegal uh, substance. Right, right. But when I when to see the healing power that it had, and, you know, I myself, before, you know, all I knew about was the stigma, uh, you know, surrounding these things. And um, not that they had these therapeutic uses. I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't know, like, the way they, the doctor explained it, the way you, if you cut yourself, um, you they just remove the dirt or anything that's in the way 
and the body has a way of healing that wound itself. All you did was remove the blockage. But they believe the mind does the same thing. If they can remove the blockage, then psychologically, psychologically, you can heal yourself. And the MDMA presents these situations and puts you in a state to where you can. Where it kind of removes these blockages. And it turns on the light, to say. So, I mean, I always said it didn't ever make me see the things that I saw in my visions. It allowed me to see the things that were already there. It kind of removed all the obstacles. Mm-hmm. And I realized I mean, it's probably the same with most people. That's why I think this drug can help more than just PTSD. It helped me realize that a lot of my issues that I had were just false, made up in my own head, worries about the future and concerns about the past, things you can't even you know, touch. And I learned the power of like breathing. And yeah. like I said before, I, I couldn't, nothing ever got through. So if someone would tell me to breathe, before, even if it was that same technique I learned in my session, it wouldn't get through. Right. PTSD, there's just like blockage, probably between like the, the left and right hemisphere or something because stuff's just not getting through. Right. When that blockage is removed, like I understood within, like it wasn't just some words said to me. Like I understood within, like how breathing really pulled me back to the center. And one of the things <laughs> I had forgotten about, and so I was retelling some of these stories for. Uh, Tom of the book. Whenever I first got to Ramadi, I asked the guy who we were switching out with, and he was a, another machine gunner. It's like, how do when all this stuff goes down, like, how do y'all handle it? Like, they were talking about, just, you know, a lot of the situations that I went through where they get to someone will pop out somewhere, distract you to shoot at you, and then they come out on the roofs and shoot at you from there, and then they'll drive a vehicle into your side and blow you all up. And it's just coming from every direction. And I asked him, I was like, man, how do you, how do you deal with that? And he told me, just breathe. And I remember, <laughs> it's it's really hard to like, really think to take a breath <laughs> before a lot of these things happen because there's not time to think. But I really, I would do that. I would take this breath, you know, deep breath into my nose. Mm. And I thought, and I don't ever remember going from the floor to up on the gun and firing. I was just always up on the gun. And you had to be fast and get on them. They got on you because most of the time they've just been sitting there watching you for hours, figuring out how to attack you. And you're just blind in the dark, wondering which alleyway is going to come out of. So oh, it's uh, a lot of stress, but the MDMA really helps. So what was your first your first experience on the gunner that really made you, uh, that really was ingrained in your head? Well, that that experience with those kids, because um, right after those, the, the the situation with the kids was my very first engagement in the in Ramadi. So I had all I heard all the stories before and everything. And whenever, shortly after, I engaged the children, I was I was on like high alert, and I was, it you know they told me a lot about shooting at corners and stuff. To, keep them from coming back out, you know, if they pop out. So just kind of keep it on them. You learn in training to go, um, <laughs> the way they teach you to know whether you got six to eight rounds, because you can't, on a machine gun, you can't count one, two, three, four, because <laughs> it shoots so fast. Right. They teach you, as you pull the trigger, you say, die, motherfucker, die, and that's six to eight rounds. Oh. It's kind of some gruesome stuff, but that's yeah. how they teach you. So when you squeeze the trigger, you say that ditty in your head, 
and when you release it off the very end at 680 round. Well, they teach you whenever you get over there, completely opposite. Just hold your hold your finger down the trigger until yeah. it's over. <laughs> and uh, I was firing, and this white vehicle came out. And I remember just everything that they told me. Um, they'll distract you and then run a vehicle into your side that's rear with explosives and blow the vehicle up and everyone up. And I just turned on the vehicle, and um, you have a – rules of engagement when in these type of situations and it's supposed to be you shoot the tires out first mm-hmm. if it keeps coming then you shoot the control of the car if it keeps coming then you shoot the driver but you really can't just use pop shots with a machine gun especially in the middle of a firefight that you're already in so right. it was pretty much tires kill all once squeeze the trigger but um, I remember after all that stuff was over and I ran out of ammo and I called for another can of ammo whenever I was putting the ammo up on there. And I just looked. Everything was just turned to dust. There was a white vehicle with bullet holes in it. And everything was just dusty everywhere. Parts of uh, mud brick and all that other stuff like falling off the sides. And I just saw the, the, the destruction that was all in the squeeze of a finger. And it just, it's, it's kind of dark in a way because you do realize the, the power kind of put in your hands right. and uh, it does give you this surge of energy that's just kind of dark and powerful at the same time but it's just it, it, I've realized it's part of all of this it's just in combat you see the, the lowest of man like the left hand step or right mm-hmm. hmm. go down and uh, it's sad but it's, it's it's part of us yeah can you um, talk about who Seabass was? Yeah, Seabass was my um, my driver. His name was uh, Miles Sebastian. He was from Opelousa, Louisiana. And, uh, yeah, one of the significant things about being like the gunner and the drivers, when everybody would dismount from the vehicle, we're the, we're the ones that always stay with the vehicle. So always got to be someone behind the wheel, always got to be someone on the gun. So whenever my – I was the lead vehicle in my platoon, and uh, so I had the lieutenant in my vehicle and our radio guy and another sergeant. So they always got out of the vehicle, and it was just me and him. So there was a lot of times where we were holding down the position by ourselves um, before um, December came, and I'd actually remembered um, – before we, when we were sitting at this strong point position, um, before we got hit with the RPG, it, it took me a long while afterwards to remember this because we were all talking about uh, the situation that had occurred, um, you know, after it happened, all of us who had survived. And um, we talked about, I, I couldn't really remember what had happened before because the way it worked with me is I just, all of a sudden I was in this big black, void and it was like a date um i've had lucid dreams a lot in my life and it's like that feeling like you're about to wake up in a lucid dream and right when that happened i was back in these in the flames was back in the vehicle everything was going slow motion but my mind was racing at the speed of light and it was a it was kind of a mystical experience and everything but uh I, before that had happened i 
he had made a joke because we're always kind of cutting up with each other. I said that the reason we end up running over explosives and everything was that his stomach was so big that it kept hitting the steering wheel, which wasn't a truth. We all have like gear and all that other stuff on anyway. And then he said my neck was so fat that I couldn't see any attacks coming from anywhere. That's why we get hit. And mm-hmm. we were all laughing about that joke from right when the whole vehicle just blew up. Ugh. And I love how, how short life can be. One minute you're laughing, the next minute that person that was laughing with you can be gone. So it really helps you understand the value of life. It's, it's, and I've been around death whenever I was growing up. I grew up on a farm, so we slept the animals sometimes. But whenever you see a human being dying that way, making those sounds, the animals, it's, uh, and that was your friend. It just messes with the mind so much. It just can't, it really can't categorize it. That's one of the things that can cause PTSD. There's just this image and this experience floating around your head and it doesn't know where to place it. And so it just keeps coming up at random times. I would, I would relive my experience of getting blown up at least like five times a day. Yeah. And just, you just always kind of come back and you relive it. And it wouldn't get categorized. Just keep coming up, coming up. And it wasn't until it was, felt really good, but it wasn't until I took in a questionnaire after my uh, first three sessions, I believe, and it asked me about that situation where I wrote down before about my attack, about how often I think about it. Mm-hmm. And I like had to think, like, oh my gosh, I haven't, I really haven't thought about this since probably my second session. And I was like. You know, it was amazing when it was something that was haunting me day in, day out to not remember when the last time it was. You know, to have to actually think about it was a great feeling. So, yeah. sure. Oh, man. So in, in the book, it mentions that before you started treatment, you had a mushroom trip in the woods. Yes. You uh, Are you okay talking about yeah, that? I- I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm talking about that. Do you feel like that had anything to I'm do not... with uh, like the healing power of the the rest of the experiment after that? Because I always attribute a lot of healing power to psilocybin mushrooms. And I know it's just a I, brief um, trip for you. But... Well, I'd, I'd had actually a, um, a few before that. It was only I think one maybe mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. With that situation, um, while I was in school and I was trying to find something to smoke. I didn't like having to do it that way, but that's how you have to do it. Yeah. Um, I came across another um, person in the Marine Corps, but they're called um, Corman. They're the Navy medics right. that are embedded with us in the infantry. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't in my unit or anything, but he had actually um, been in around the same time I was. But he was uh, like seven years older than me. We became really good friends, and he was the one that started – because while I was confronted with him, I was just getting off of the medications from the VA. Mm-hmm. So I was telling him a lot about the issues that I was having and everything. And he was the one that I brought up about whenever he was living in upstate New York, growing up doing LSD and, and mushrooms and about the experiences he had with them. And I couldn't stop thinking about them. But I um, I really couldn't trust getting mushrooms from some other person. So I uh, grew myself. <laughs> yeah, right on. I grew golden teachers, and which are supposed to be some of the most potent. And 
the experience that I had, I went and, and I had my corpsman buddy uh, as my, um, my, my guide, as you would say, but yeah. he was my trip buddy. And uh, <laughs> it really makes a Marine feel comfortable when they have their medic with them. You know, I'm not, not wasn't in the military at that time. I was in school, but like you still have this mentality, especially between other veterans and everything. So yeah. it was really good. It wasn't like I was actually talking to him on the phone the other day, and he had said this. Um, he's like, you know, I remember you weren't really, we weren't ever like tripping to get high. You were always doing this this soul searching, and I, and I was, I was always looking within. Right. So whenever I I had the MDMA experience. I was familiar to the, um, I was I was just familiar to the, I guess the psychedelic field because it's almost like you're <laughs> the dimension, um, the other dimension. We're all on a certain frequency. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's almost like we're on a certain frequency, and when you take these, it's dialing you into them. And so, like in that beginning part right. where it's fuzzy in between the channels, you can go through some kind of symptoms. If you're too attached to them, it can be kind of uh, frightening sometimes. So I was kind of used to that dissolution already but mm-hmm. the uh, I never really went inward I never sat down when I was on mushrooms um, like I was always looking at trees and looking at plants and mm-hmm. talking about life with you know my friend <laughs> and stuff the MDMA I was you know I had to you know lay down on the bed and go inward and mm-hmm. I got to see the um, psychedelic experience just in a whole new light right through that way and I tried it myself um, after I got out of the, um, the research study because I couldn't be on anything else, even medication, um, while I was on, in the study. So after I got out, I, you know, I was like, well, I want to see how they, it's familiar with the, uh, if it's similar to the uh, mushroom experience or how it's <laughs> going to be different now that I've had DMA. And it was, it was, it was a lot different because my mind didn't have anything that it needed to. I guess process. I really was just able to be, and and it, it, I feel like the psilocybin. One of the things with me is it just really my anxieties like go away, my mm-hmm. my worries and and fears because I, I realize just I get too lost in my own head and create things that aren't real and worry about them. <laughs> and then whenever I have these experiences through these psychedelics, it's just like I realize they're um, they're false illusions. It really can help break through those things. So, you mentioned that you were um, at the time too, or I guess it was after you were going to school, but you were taking some art classes. Um, was this your first time doing art, or did you do art before for trying to do like a therapy also? No, I I never. I mean, I doodled and, and sketched stuff. Mm-hmm. I really wasn't into it. I need. I didn't even do art when I was in. High school, I didn't even take the class. I, um, <laughs> it, it wasn't in. I would I would mess around a little bit. I actually have a um, a drawing that I did up at Rose, going through the different phases of being wilting, you know, blooming, and then wilting, and all that other stuff. And I did that the day that I got blown up. Because whenever I came back, I mean, I came back. I guess I was always here, but I really felt like I was. It's hard to say, but it's like I was born that day, and everything I just had within memories and everything, I, I accepted. I was really in this fog, this daze, after I'd gotten blown up and whacked on the head. But the, one of the things I did whenever I got back is I actually had to go back out, or chose to go back out that very night, 
before then I did this drawing on a uh, on a book. It wasn't until I got in school I just took introduction to art class and just happened to be while I was doing the research study and like I could uh, Tom puts the um, my charcoal piece that I did of me holding the mm-hmm. skull it's like a self portrait in the book and that was my final for that class and if you were to like see a lot of the ones before that you could just see how like before MDMA and after MDMA is like the difference between a clear mind and a clouded mind. It really was. I, I realized I had a talent and I was always I had this thing since I was a kid. I just always thought it would be cool if somehow I could plug my mind up into everyone else's and they could see what I'm seeing. Cause I always just have these great visuals in the head and I realized art's a way that I can actually mm-hmm. express close to interesting. Yeah. And so, um, that all kind of happened while I was in my MDMA sessions, and I've been doing it <laughs> ever since. Gotten wow. a lot more into the sacred geometry side of doing things uh, yes. when it comes to expressing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I have um one piece called Prometheus's Fire, that's uh, like a black and white sacred geometry one. It's really trippy. Um, yeah. I- I just saw that. They use that. The Sumerian drawings on it, Sumerian writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah That's cuneiform. Cool, very cool. Yeah. Um, what, when was they use that one in a fun. And which one? The Prometheus Fire. They used it in a um, fundraiser that we did for um, Maps, the Indiegogo oh. fundraiser. And Excellent. if you donated a certain amount then you get like a, a print of it so <laughs> nice <laughs> well, um nick when when you first got back when did you truly realize that you knew something was up like when was the first time you had a panic attack oh that was that was actually the i think it was the first day that i gotten back might have been the following day but it was when my parents and family were still there in my Beyonce at the time. Um, she, we were all going to the beach. I really wanted to go see the beach. And there's a beach right there on base called Onslow Beach. And it's also where they fire artillery out into the, the ocean. And we were coming back, and the concussion from the artillery, I mean, just would and yeah. just, every time it would do that, feel it in my chest, and I would go back. And I'm trying to drive <laughs> my mom and my. Uh, my wife, you know, and we're going down this road and every time that concussion would hit me, I'd be like back in the vehicle and I would just, because I'd had many situations where not, you know, where we were, you could say we were blown up, but it blew up right beside our vehicle. You still have a concussion going right beside us, but we, you know, we nearly missed it. But the moment that I was actually blown up, I mean, it hit me. It was just lights out instantly. So I didn't, couldn't ever feel a concussion, but I think there's so many explosions and, it just brought me back, and I just remember, like, having to pull over on the side of the road, and I was, like, punching my steering wheel and saying, you know, remember I was, like, yelling at, I guess, the Iraqis or whatever. I was just saying, you bastards, you bastards, you bastards, and I was just hitting the steering wheel. My parent or my wife and girl didn't know what to do. They just put their hands on me and stuff, and it was – I kind of rubbed that one off. You know, I, I just got back, <laughs> so – but it was a little bit later that I kind of accepted it. They they kind of 
teach you this mentality in the Marine with the, you know, that whole weakest link thing. You know, the weakest one in the herd is the one that the, <laughs> the predator will go after, right? right? And, you know, that kind of stuff. So you don't show your weakness. You know, if you get a lamp, suck it up. Unless, you, unless, you know, you've got something, a bone sticking out of your side, then don't complain. And so a lot of times you get this mentality that you don't complain about anything because if so, then you're trying to get out of duty or you're trying to get out of anything, you know, or skating, as we used to say in the Marine Corps, you're just kind of trying to skate out of doing work. And that's not the case. You know, you really have these symptoms. So a lot of guys don't mention anything. So I didn't, I never really said anything or dealt with it while I was still on the infantry side. It was once I went over to the rifle range that a whole different unit different set of people that i was comfortable enough i actually got diagnosed with it i just had to go for a checkup and i was just filling out a questionnaire on the computer and then a thing popped up and said that someone would come see me <laughs> and someone coming around the corner huh. and then i'm standing for some navy therapist or whatever and said you've been diagnosed with ptsd the first thing i could think of was, how do i keep this a secret <laughs> but, <laughs> Yeah. You know, I ended up telling my unit, and they were so cool about it, very comfortable. You know, I, the battalion commander even called me up and said that, you know, if you needed anything, just let them know. And, you know, normally there's not a jumping of command whenever you're in the military. And so they were really helpful. So they, they helped me up, opened me up uh, to actually cool. getting help. That's, That's uh, one of the problems with the Marines, at least, is just don't want to admit that there's some, something wrong. Right. So now, since 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 you've had the treatment and you know that it's a successful uh, method, have you tried to get your and your Marine brothers to like try the therapy? I mean, I know it's not well, exactly I mean, legal. But... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've. Um... I mean, I actually talked to uh, one friend. I mean, I won't mention his name or anything, but he had yeah, yeah. was having some issues and even some family issues and everything. And he had told me that, you know, I was trying to tell him about, you know, when it would be legal, at least when MAPT is their idea of having, you know, legalized by 2021. And, uh, you know, no doubt it will become a legalized treatment the way they're doing it and everything, but it's, by then, if by 2021, if 22 vets committing suicide every day, it's almost like 50,000 dead by then. And those are guys that I've fought with. And like those people become brothers more than your flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, they, they can't just get into this treatment. There's not that many. I mean, I know there's uh, one going on in Boulder, Colorado right now that's open to more than just veterans and everything. But. Um, you know, the access to it, the actual treatment isn't there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the access to the drug on the street is. And the problem with that is that it's not really, you know, pure clinical grade MDMA. Right. A lot of times. Yeah, you never like, know, right? And, and, I, and I know they have these, they do have the testing kits and everything. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I told my friend. You know, I said, look, you know, if you are going to try it, then, you know, get a testing kit, make sure you're getting what you're getting. And because uh, those things can show you. Yeah, what's in there and everything. So, I, uh, you know, I said if you're gonna try, it, you can do it that way. And I'll tell them about the setting, set and setting. But I myself, I I tried it. I just wanted to see uh, what the difference was. I tried uh, MDMA or what they call Molly or whatever, right. and it was nothing like 
what I had. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's not, like, I... not like the clinical stuff. <laughs> no, the clinical stuff was, if I had to put words, <laughs> the clinical stuff was just mystical and divine. And the stuff I got off the street, all it did was make me horny. That's all I <laughs> was. So, do you, know who, do you know who Alexander Shulgin is? Say that name again. Sasha Shulgin, Alexander Shulgin. I'm not sure. He's considered, no. he's considered like the father of MDMA. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but, but now that you've seen the benefits of a, of the medical use, how do you feel about people, like you said, like using it to go to a rave or something? You know, like I, I get to see the side of it that that was like you know it's kind of called ecstasy. <laughs> Once I broke through, I guess my demons and everything, I really experienced that. And I I thought about that, like man, if I could really, I could listen to some music uh, this week. Would be great to kind of party and stuff too. So I could yeah. see that use in it. Um, you know, when if you don't have, I guess a psychological issue or uh, demons to fight. Um, I can really see how it could be, uh, it could really enhance the, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. When I really, yeah, I really, I really, I don't know how to explain this. Music was something else, even though yeah. that, like, the stuff they were putting <laughs> was like this native American stuff. It was just something. It sounded like I was hearing. <laughs> I really don't I do know that why at one point I was hearing the music that was going in my ears, but I was also hearing sounds that was coming from the visual. And I was having this visual where I was walking down this like concrete road and there were these like angelic like things and their mouths made music. Like the sound of them opening their mouths was music wow. and it was just bizarre. But I was just like so deep in mm -hmm. one of the weird things about that is I was, I was like totally aware though that I'm still on a bed. So it's like I wasn't in another world. <laughs> it was just like a really strong daydream. Where the visual was just crisp and clear, and a lot of times I didn't want to like set up and take my eye shades off because I didn't want to end it. But I would, I would, you know, come up and I'd tell them all the things that I'd seen and experienced. And um, but I mean, I would if I was gonna, if my, I myself, if I ever wanted to try it at a rave or something, I'd prefer to have some clinical. Stuff. <laughs> True. Um, now, Nick, we first saw you when we were at the uh, Horizons um, Psychedelic Conference, and I remember one person from a different um, study was there, and she said that it was kind of like, um, I think she had cancer and they were using psilocybin to heal it, and she said that she feels like she got cancer to have the psilocybin experience, and I know that um, I also read uh, the book, and in it, you talked a little bit about having some earlier issues. So I was just wondering if you felt like kind of going into the Marines and I don't want to necessarily say getting PTSD, no, I, I, but I, yeah, I like, do you feel and, like it kind of gotcha? Yeah, I definitely was that way. I, I When I had this and integrated it, I realized that even the most horrific things that I experienced in Iraq happen for a reason and and I can't explain those to everyone else you know and justify them it's it's my own life but I was able to see it and why it happened and I can even see why I had the things I went through I mean 
it's quite possible that I went through what I went through and I was accepted into the trial. And, um, I mean, like Tom had said, um, before, like you had heard in the uh, horizons, you know, he was trying to find someone who would actually reveal all their stuff. And you, you already, you'd already kind of signed some things about not talking about what goes on in Iraq, well, at least not showing the videos that you record yourself and all that other stuff because they had an issue about that getting all of online. But, you know, once you're out, you can talk about these things, but I was just talking to my therapist and it was being recorded during the, the therapy. So it was afterwards that I talked to Tom and I said, yeah, you can watch all these footage. So he got to see me vulnerable and when you read this <laughs> book, I mean, I'm naked to the world in a sense. And, uh, I can really see how it happened to where I could share my story to where this can one day be a legal treatment. I mean, when you mm-hmm. see, you know, I'm not just, I have, I mean, I went through the, the military and had some, some traumatic things happen to me. And we all have traumatic things. I mean, you can get in a car wreck here or in America or be raped or molested and it's still very traumatic. But I think with the, epidemic in a sense that we're having with the veterans committing suicide i think this can really be the gateway to getting people to see you know well if this is helping our veterans cure themselves from something that's almost incurable you know then it just shows that it's got a lot more potential for just than just you know ptsd and uh, we just might be the gateway that helps get this put into schedule three and show that you know this does have medicinal use so it needs to be in Schedule 3. It doesn't right necessarily need to be in Schedule 1. Damn right. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Can you, uh, Nick, can you describe the the course of the, the therapy? Like, when did you take it and immediately lay down? Or was there um, an actual vocal section, a session? Was it always the couch? I mean, how did you eventually get to the point where you were like, I, I feel like I'm almost cured. I feel like I'm almost there. Um, The way the, the therapy worked, they talk to you let's just say like a, in a month's time you two weeks before you would have these come in for like in a couple hours of just talking to them and then you know they're preparing you for what you're going to go through and you're getting to know you and the things you went through and uh, i was already kind of going through some therapy with them before i had the drug and it's just um you know a lot of things they're saying like well we'll make sure that we will Maybe talk about that while you're on the MDMA. And then uh, like like a third week, I would actually have the um, a session with the drug and they would have you fast. Uh, well, just like they would have you fast for like blood work in the morning. You're not supposed to have anything for the, you know, like eight hours before, 12 hours before. And um, I would go in there and you already agree that you're going to be staying there the, the whole day and, you know, they feed you and all that stuff. And, um, I mean, I would, um, I would always go down to this, uh, this futon, just, you kind of get comfortable when you have your therapy session in one spot, you kind of always want to go back and sit in that comfy spot. And, um, Michael would be on my right side of the futon and Annie would be on my left and I have a, uh, blood pressure kind of cuff on my arm, which at sometimes whenever the drug was really kicking in, like it just felt like this serpent, like on my arm, kind of like squeezing, like 
like uh, constricting and everything. But, you know, once they got enough readings, I was able to ask at times, like, could I be able to take this off and stuff? But um, I had cameras on me and recording equipment, some speakers kind of hanging from the ceiling. Because all of it's being recorded for future, to train future uh, researchers and therapists to administer the. And, um, you know, I'd signed things before those can be confidential. I just, I guess, unsigned it whenever I agreed to talk. But uh, whenever you um, would take the drug, they'd hand it to you in like a little um, little bowl. And I, I grew up Roman Catholic. And right. so, like, it was like the same way they give you the host and everything. <laughs> yeah. so it was like, I felt like I was in this, like, a religious ceremony in a sense. And so it had that, that feel to it. And um, I remember towards my last one, I requested if I could bring incense in, and they were very cool with that. It's just cool. they don't normally have military people acting hippy dippy, I guess you'd say. But <laughs> I was kind of already into that setting and stuff. So I'd bring in some some stones and everything too, and like hold those while I would under. But they give you the drug, and they just kind of talk for a bit because it does take maybe about like an hour before you kind of like whoa start to notice yeah and when i did maybe about 30 minutes and you put the eye shades on like little black eye shades real nice headphones and just lay back and just uh, practice my breathing breathing in through my nose into my stomach and out through my mouth just breathing cyclically like that and um the first thing that hit me was like this anxiety my heart, my very first session, I remember my heart just racing. And I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm about to have a panic attack. I need to rip these headphones off and set up and, you know, breathe. And, you know, it's, panic attacks sometimes it makes you just want to pick off your shirt and get out of there. And um, I just remember this voice coming to me just saying, like, breathe, just breathe. And when I breathed, I remember my heart just instantly going from pounding like crazy. Just I couldn't feel it anymore. It's like, whoa. And then I, I didn't say anything to Michael and Annie, and uh, I kept listening to music, and then it came back again. And then I breathed, and then it stopped. And so what it was, it was like like wading out into the ocean. You know, you keep hitting the waves, 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 and you hit that big wave, and then it's just calm when you're out there. And that's what finally seemed to happen. I went through these kind of waves of anxiety, and each time I chose to accept them and not run away and breathe through them, right. I would eventually get to this calm steady pace whenever that happened it just seemed like you get in touch with only way i can describe it it's like this higher self yeah. and you would pose these questions to yourself that you know you wouldn't answer i guess you wouldn't ask if you already knew the answer to <laughs> and <laughs> this what comes back to you is just you know it's yourself and you all this stuff is coming from within but i mean i really don't know how to describe a lot of it but yeah. One of the things I realize is there's so much you come into this world with just your body and there's so much information already built into it and everything you need to go through life is almost already with you. Mm-hmm. And these, I mean, this therapy for me allowed me to see a lot of that, a lot of connections and why things happen and just give me enough insight to really ease my mind and go with the flow. Yeah. You, we all kind of try and control things a lot of times. And that was one of the issues is I, you know, my friend died and that was supposed to be my responsibility to kill the enemy before they kill us. And I felt like I had failed. And 
finding healing through that by being able to see why it happened in a grand scale, which is like another thing I can't really explain, but I felt it and I understood it, and that creates healing on such a level that's so deep that that's you no, know, you can't get this that from being on Syracuse, Zoloft, having your little one-hour talk session. Some therapist who just writes on relay and you know and one of the problems that I, I feel a lot of veterans have is they don't talk about things even to the therapist because they don't feel like the therapist can relate you know right and so they hold back a lot of stuff yeah like, why MDMA, would they be able to really, understand right? you, you take down all these yeah you take down all these walls and that's right just, it doesn't matter it, does. it, it wrecks know. the walls <laughs> and there's no there's no exactly, walls left yeah. Yeah. Yeah, everything, oh. the lines between things blur and everything merges. And that has not just go with the things you see, but how you feel. Yeah. All the restrictions that you put up, you realize a lot of them you put up out of fear. And when the fear dissolves, you're just like, my gosh, I've created so much BS in my life. This is, I'm just the, get I'm right the, I'm the mile. Just get over it. See, I find mm-hmm. it so incredible that you had to experience all the, for such a large portion of your life, it was just, traumatic experience after traumatic experience and then with almost a single session of this drug you you feel better and yeah. it's illegal <laughs> right and like chris said on our one of our one of our previous podcasts how dare you how fucking dare exactly. you how dare you withhold exactly. this from people that could that it could help so much right. like you said what you said 50,000 yeah. soldiers a year yeah. commit suicide mm-hmm. Well, no, it, it's uh, 22 a day, and I was saying by the time oh. they say 2021 yeah. is when they would like to have the drug right. you know, legalized mystically, but by then there would, that would be up to 50,000 dead. Wasn't there, there was some stats at a certain point in the current war we're in that there was more soldiers committing suicide that were actually getting killed yeah. in combat. Yeah, and that's, that is true. That's, I mean, that, I think that's been true the, the entire time, and then especially now that – like a lot of us, Iraq and uh, veterans and stuff, that's all over with. Well, you know, because I've heard from some guys, they even have this feeling like they want to go back in. And, you know, it's just, it makes me think of, even though it's a lot better than the penitentiary system, it re- reminds me of, like, people who have been in the penitentiary system and they get out and they create some crime just so they can go back in because life was somehow easier. And they had everything right. kind of taken care of or whatever it is. And it's just right. like, I can feel what they feel because they just feel out of place in the civilian world. But MDMA may really help me get over all those little walls. Because, I mean, they, they, they teach you to put up a lot of walls between you and civilians. It's, you know, it's always you and civilians whenever it's in the military. You know, they always teach you, or the Marines at least. Like, they always say, you know, civilians are disgusting the way they walk, <laughs> put their hands in their pocket and shoot bubble gum at the same time and they just teach you all these things like that and they engrave it in your head <laughs> and then you just start you just kind of how you go along with it i mean this is in a sense wow. brainwashing wow. but it's right. brainwashing for a purpose because regardless of what people feel about war and and violence there's always going to be these, these people in the world that want to take control and manipulate the innocent and there's going to have to be people who stand in between those type of people and the innocent and a lot of the times it's People you wouldn't expect, and and there's always going to be need to be those people in this world, and so I feel that 
And as long as there are, there's going to be need to be medicines that mm-hmm. can, you know. And if you re- you read the book, I was a very peaceful person yeah. before, yeah. and I had to do what I needed to do in order to get out of Iraq alive. Right. And that changes you. Yeah, and and the, for the drug to be able to switch me back, and in a sense, it really didn't switch me back. I never can go back to the same old dimensions, but it got me on track. I was able to to grow and feel functional again. Right. Feeling functional and being a part of society is what a lot of people would, you know, like to feel, and not just you know be able to maintain a job and everything, but from a PTSD standpoint, it's just you don't want to feel like you're trying to fit in, but the whole time you've got these demons screaming in your ear and you're trying to fake it's not going on. You know what I mean? You just want it to stop. Mm-hmm. And that's it's so beautiful that the drug can mm-hmm. can do that for vets. So so what do you say to somebody that what do you say to your friend that wants to aside from the fact that, you know, get it illegally what what's your and aside from the fact that 2021 is when they expect it to be legal what do you what is your suggestion i mean you know it's, like it's so it's hard tough because it's so hard it, it, to... it, 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 it is hard because I, I would say if the stuff that was actually out there and available to people right. on the streets if it was actually pure and everything there might be a, you know you could you could get some friends, loving family members or whatever, and have some people facilitate this type of experience. But honestly, trying it outside of the clinical session isn't all that smart. Because, I mean, you, like you said, you could you could take this and you can party or you can take it and go inward and face your, your demons. And, and so it has this potential no matter how you use it. I mean, I would really, since I have tried what was on the street outside of it, it's really hard for me to recommend that. But when when it does come to recommending the psychedelic therapy, I I personally have a a faith and belief in um, psilocybin mushrooms. Yes. Because they, they can help with the same experience if you would choose if you choose to go inward. We're big. And the, those are. Here. Oh well, that's well, that's good. Yeah. So yeah, that's one. If I say if there's anything, but it's that it's that talking about it. It's that getting to that stage. So, I mean, I, I don't see how, you know, just taking it. If you're a veteran suffering and you just took it and went out in your woods and stuff, uh, I wouldn't advise that. It's always right. great to have a, uh, a trip buddy, as they say, right. or at least someone who could be along there with you. Because well, we, the talking part of it, once you actually open up and start speaking about things, mm-hmm. that seems to be the actual processing part that goes on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we talk about it here all the time. I mean, we, these drugs are tools. You have to respect and yes. use them as tools. Exactly. Right. You know, never, mm-hmm. never as just. That's why, that. like I said, same way. Uh, I was going to say the same way, like a, a pistol is, and or exactly. what? Right. One hundred percent. You exactly. got to treat these psychological, like, treat these psychedelics like they're loaded guns, and you know, treat them like that and be respectful of them like that because you know, just when it even comes with the mushrooms, you could, you could, um, if you didn't know your dosage and what you were taking. You really could have um, an interesting experience. I don't like to say <laughs> bad trip because yeah. sometimes yeah, I don't like to say that. always realize why you had the experience afterwards right. and realize There's oh well, that wasn't a bad trip. I need to go through that. But you can make them 
there's ways of making them a lot more enjoyable when you follow the rules of set and setting. So. Right. Yes. Trains, uh, you have um, uh, boot camp, and then you finally go overseas. You're trained so hard that they kind of just drop you off, and they don't untrain you. And it seems like not just having that one trip, but you had a couple trips that it's kind of like your new training, um, like a way, like you said before, like creating, like um, allowing the two hemispheres Debriefing. to interact again. A debriefing of the brain. It yeah. really does turn off that if you if you say they kind of slip, flip on a, a killer instinct switch to go over there and do what you do. There's no flipping of the switch when you come off or like when you come back home. So, you know, and, and I don't ever see this as something where, you know, they can train them or give it to the military who has or military veteran or, or member who has PTSD and then they get healed and then they'll go right back into war and everything. It's, it's not like something like that, but it is something to where we're not just, you know, broken machines once you're done. And, you know, here's your, your benefits and here's your whatever for the rest of your life. And here's some free schooling and here's some pills. And it's just like, they throw stuff at you (laughs) and it's not asking. Honestly, with this, we're not asking for that. Like what I'm trying to, by sharing my stories like we don't want any freaking houses or any money mm-hmm. or any of that we just want healing if you help us get the healing we need we can get our own freaking houses and we can make, <laughs> yeah. take care of ourselves and i really don't feel think that that's so much to ask for when they're going to have to pay out the ass for all this medical stuff and the benefits whenever you know a veteran does kill themselves and they got to pay out that sgli money to the veteran. it's just it's messed up but when it comes to the money and the people upstairs or whatever you want to call them, the government, it's, you never know what's going on with them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you never know why they won't let us have something like you said. When it can do what it can do, then why, are they why is it that it's illegal? Right. It makes no sense. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Nick, you know, we appreciate you being here with us so much. Uh, seriously, this was such an honor. Yeah. You are truly a pioneer. Yeah, really. Um, there's no other way to put it. You're you're paving the way for future for the future to be a positive one. Mm-hmm. You really are doing a great thing Especially here. Especially for uh, veterans, this isn't an by awesome talking thing. about it with people and coming on here, and this is going to reach a bunch of people, and you know, just spreading the word about how you're doing the right thing, and we really appreciate you for it. Seriously, yeah. Thank you for taking the time. Seriously, it means so much what you did for our country, what you do now, spreading the good word, and. Uh, it's all about healing and positivity, and you're totally spreading that. And I just want to thank you personally. I really appreciate it. Well, yeah, I really appreciate y'all saying that because uh, <laughs> one of the things I I had was when I went over there and and did what I did in Iraq. When you're going through all the training, and especially when leading up to the Marine Corps, you just think you're going to be trained to be this warrior who's going to go fight out the warriors. And then that wasn't what I saw fighting over there honestly thought to myself a lot of times if I was being invaded, I'd be mixing up bombs in my kitchen right. too, yeah. planting them on the road you know, to protect my family. And it was just big whole misinformation and nobody wanted to be killing anybody. Yeah. And I actually feel like now I'm actually fighting for something, you know, on my own. I'm not just a pawn on a chessboard anymore. Right. And I really feel like I've kind of, I can actually make a difference now. So I'm, that's what right, I'm hoping. Man. You are. Like you to are. Be able to go to the grave. 
knowing that this is <laughs> legal one of these days. <laughs> well, seriously, Nick, Nicholas, thank you. Nicholas Blackson, how can people get in contact with you if they want to contact you? Um, you can just plug in my name on Facebook. Yeah. And your Twitter's there. Twitter and Instagram the same way. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just put in my name and you should be able to find me. And the book is Acid Test by Tom Schroeder. That's S H R O D E R. Right. Pick up a copy. I got I got a copy at the library actually. I, yeah. I so, took out a copy and then I bought a copy after I read it. <laughs> yeah. I actually but, noticed uh Tom had posted it the other day that the FBI had just gotten a copy and put it in their library too. Wow. So. <laughs> See, you know what? I went I went to the library and I walked right to the new releases section and it was out on display. And you see, like, these words, acid test, you know, and it's very kind of daunting. Yeah, but then it, it when, does kind of look like you can lick the cover. And, right. <laughs> and then you realize what Hi. it's about, and it's so intriguing, <laughs> you know? True. Uh, but seriously, Nick, yeah, thank you. Um, thank you, man. I, uh, I'm i Matt Landis for the Tink Tink Club. And I'm Chris Conti. I'm from Tank. Thank you, guys. We'll take you later. There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Lines being drawn Nobody's right If everybody's wrong Young people speaking their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind Time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down What a field day for the heat A thousand people in the street Singing songs and they're carrying signs Mostly say hooray for our side It's time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Your life it will creep It starts when you're always afraid Step out of line, the man comes